We will be in 1 Samuel chapters 18, 19, and 20. 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. I'm Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors here. Thankful for that. Thanks, worship team. I, I, uh, I felt compelled to kneel. I hesitate to do that because I never want to be making a show. Um, but I felt compelled to kneel, and I was reminded of um, a time that we spent in Fort Wayne over a year ago. A team of us go out there on a regular basis, maybe take this just as a little bit of a testimony of what God's doing in my life, but I um, had this clear image while we were there of being a kneeling person in a room full of standing people, a kneeling person in a room full of standing people. And I remember um, being very scared by that because as the tallest person in any room, I can be seen by the whole, whole group. And so what does it mean when I kneel and I'm no longer seen? And so I'm trying to live into that, I guess. And I felt like the Lord even reminded me as I was processing some of the things going across my mind. Footnote, please pray for your pastor. But as I was processing something in my mind, the Lord just reminded me again, like when you kneel, nobody else can see you but me, and that's the only one that counts. And so um, has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Baptisms in a couple Sundays on the 11th. Um, definitely two littles. And two bigs, adults. Um, and by the way, if you or someone you know has video equipment, I need to video that service for my ordination. So, you know, everybody be on your best behavior because people will be watching. But uh, if you have that, let me know. First uh, Samuel chapter 18. Let's dig in. This is an interesting sermon because I've got like kind of two endings, two application points. And uh, figured out this week, finally, we'll be done with First Samuel by the end of August. We'll do Colossians this fall. I want to get us back to the gospel a little bit. And then in November, I'm doing a series for four weeks called In All Her Glory, In All Her Glory. And it's about uh, God's call to ordaining and women preaching and uh, sending women fully into the glory of the roles that God designed them to have. So either going to really make you mad or change your mind is what's going to happen with that series. But I'm getting used to that lately. So we like these rags to riches stories, don't we? Oh, sorry, Dan. Thanks, buddy. Uh, we like these rags to riches stories. You know, like Cinderella, here's the girl who uh, just, you know, raised kind of in some weird form of poverty who becomes queen, right? And that's kind of the story that David's having is David is having this story where, you know, just a little while ago, David was the runt of the litter the overlooked brother, uh, the last of eight, who was really just consigned to taking care of the sheep, which is kind of the least desirable job in a family. And it's David who Samuel calls in front of him. It's David who Samuel anoints to be the next king. It's David who goes face to face with Goliath and wins, and he leads Israel in a decisive victory over the Philistines. And First Samuel chapter 18 basically picks up right where 1 Samuel 17 leaves off. At the end of 1 Samuel 17, Saul finds out who killed Goliath and decides to give his family free taxes for the year, for life, not just for the year, for life, which is good. And then this happens in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. By the way, this is kind of where we're going today, so 18, 19, and 20. Um, this is what happens in chapter 18, verse 1. The text says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, 
The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan is Saul's son. We've not really met Jonathan um, or talked too much about him. Right after Saul becomes king, it's really interesting. There's all of these battles that um, Saul wins as king, but it's actually Jonathan who wins them, his son. So as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also interesting in the sight of Saul's servants. By Saul's command, David, see this again, David has entered Saul's royal court. Saul says, no more going home. I want you to stay here with me. And while in the royal court, David grows in favor with just about everyone there is to grow in favor with. Uh, In 18 verses 1 through 5, it's this list of allies, these people who become loyal to David. In fact, there's three groups. One of the first groups is the people. 18 verse 5 says that it was good in the sight of the people whenever David went out to war. Uh, In chapter 18 verse 16, it says all of Israel and Judah loved David. They invent a song to celebrate David's victory over Goliath. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands, they sing. And and note too, it's not just the general population that come to love David. It says it was also the servants of Saul. It's other members of Saul's royal court who become loyal to David. The next ally is Saul's son, Jonathan. This is a little surprising. Saul's son, Jonathan, would have inherited the throne when Saul died. But because God has chosen David to be the next king, it effectively takes the right of rulership or a future of rulership away from Jonathan. By, all, by our estimation, David and Jonathan should be sworn enemies. But the text says in the moments after the battle with Goliath, the knit The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, that David and Jonathan loved one another as they loved their own souls. David gets the people and Saul's servants. David gets Saul's son. David even gets Saul's daughter, Michal, who we find out at the end of the chapter loves David, and David takes her as his wife. One by one, those who are loyal to Saul, the people, the servants of Saul, Saul's son, Jonathan, Saul's daughter, Michal, they they shift their loyalties from Saul to David. And this is something we're going to see in the rest of the book is one by one, all of these people that should be loyal to Saul shift their allegiances to David. And as you can imagine, Saul does not handle this well. Saul becomes jealous, he becomes angry, and his descent into madness starts to accelerate. As David continues to succeed, in chapter 18, there's three or four mentions of David's victory alone. As David continues to succeed, Saul's malcontent grows. And so 1 Samuel 18 is littered with little insights into what's going on inside of Saul. It's like a psychologist's report. 
For example, it says that Saul is angry and displeased with David in verse 8. It says that Saul, uh, in, in verse 9, it says that Saul eyed David from that, lo- that, from that day on. It's like Saul from across the throne room was kind of doing this to David, right? Or like even like, a, like when nobody was looking, you know. In verse 12, it says that Saul is, a f- is fearful of David. And in verse 15, it says that he was filled with fearful awe of David. All of this is going on inside of Saul, and it's happening because David has success in all his undertakings, and three times the text says, the Lord is with him. Saul senses the Lord's presence and blessing on David, and that's what really terrifies him. As, 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 as foolish as Saul is, he can sense the Lord's presence with, with David. And so driven by anger and jealousy and madness, Saul tries to kill David. In chapter 18, there's two times when Saul takes a spear and hurls it across the room at David to pin him to the wall and kill him. And both times, the text says David evades him. Either David's really quick or Saul has bad aim or the Lord is with him. Then uh, Saul hatches a little plot when he finds out in chapter 18, when he finds out that uh, Michal, his daughter, is in love with David, he thinks, here's an opportunity for me to get rid of David. He says, David, I'll give you my daughter's hand if you go and kill 100 Philistines and bring me back their foreskins. If you don't know what a foreskin is, go ask a neighbor. And uh, don't Google it. Don't <laughs> look up foreskins on Google Images, okay? And, uh, and it's interesting he hatches this plan, and Saul knows in chapter 18 that it's to kill David. And actually, the servants sneak in and let him know. Look at verses 25 through 27 of chapter 18. It says, Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. See, Saul's saying, I'm going to put him in a trap. And when his servants told David these words, the servants have switched sides. The servants say, David, Saul is trying to kill you. When the servants told David these words, it pleased David to be the king's son-in-law. David has an appropriate amount of ambition, an appropriate amount of holy forward-looking, because he's like, well, fine, I will be your son-in-law then, right? Before the time had expired, verse 27, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, which, by the way, means somebody had to count them, right? David comes walking in. All I can picture is David comes walking in with like a burlap sack that's kind of gross and bloody, and he drops it, and it makes a big squish. And uh, you know that he got the... I think David has this look in his eye, and he's like, count them, right? (laughs) And so, like, some guy, everybody around the courtroom's like, not it, not it, not it, right? (laughs) Right? They were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law, and Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. You know, all of this have these attempts that fail, but here's what I like about Saul. You know, poor guy. He's tall, he's good-looking, but that's all about all he has really going for him, right? He's not the brightest crayon in the box. He's spiritually just a bumbling fool, obviously has really bad aim with throwing spears. But you know what you can say for Saul? He doesn't, it's not for trying, because in chapter 19, he tries to kill David again. And you know what? Let's try the spear again, Saul says. It says he throws the spear again, and this time David escapes into the night to his own home. 
And so Saul thinks, okay, I'll hatch a plan yet again. And this time what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a whole bunch of my soldiers to David's house, and they're going to like, kind of like, I have the Lord of the Rings on the mind, you'll see in the mind, it's kind of like a Nazgul moment. They're like going to come in and like stab him while he's sleeping in the bed. And of all the people to stop this from happening, it's Jonathan and Michal. What I love about Saul is, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again with expecting different results. Poor guy. Let's try the spears. Let's try the plots. But what Saul doesn't know is that his own family has turned against him. At the beginning of chapter 19, uh, Jonathan goes to Saul and is like, Dad, listen, let's stop this. We're being a little too extreme. Let's slow it down. Well, Saul doesn't listen to Jonathan. And so when the soldiers are gathering around David's house, his daughter, Michal, David's wife, lowers him out the window. And then she does a really cool thing. She, she takes um, a statue, or a, a, it could be a piece of wood. It could also be a statue of another god. You don't know. It's used both ways in the Hebrew. And she takes like a skin of goat hair and puts it on top and then lays it in the bed and puts the sheet over it. So it looks like, you know, David's like lying in there and they knock on the door and they try to get in and she's like, oh, he's sick. Come back later. So they do. I don't know why. Like they're dumb. And so... Then they like come back again and they're like, they're asking for it. And eventually they push past her and they throw back the sheets. And it, it, it's like a movie, isn't it? It's like, dun, 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 David is nowhere to be found. It's just some goat's hair and like a statue laying in the bed. And David escapes again. David escapes again. And what's so interesting is as Jonathan's relationship and Michal's relationship are so important to David, these allies that he has among the people are so important. But we really start to see in 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20 is that the, his most important ally isn't Jonathan, it isn't Michal, it's the Lord, that the Lord is protecting his anointed king. The Lord is protecting his anointed one. It turns out that David's time in Saul's royal court is actually pretty short. It lasts only about a chapter and a half because at the end of chapter 19, David has to run away after Michal lowers him out the window. He goes running. It's interesting. He goes running of all people to Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And we don't really hear a lot from Samuel at this point. He's still alive. He's very old. I think it's interesting that David goes to Samuel. One commentator noted it's perhaps that David wanted to go and check with Samuel and be like, hey, just real quick, are you sure that I'm the Lord's anointed? Because it doesn't feel like it. (laughs) But it's not long that he's with Samuel that someone finds out. They send soldiers after him. And so David goes on the run again. In chapter 20 and beyond, from chapter 20 to the end of the book, David is on the run. Think about that. First Samuel is 31 chapters long. David wasn't even introduced until chapter 16. And he spends about two-thirds of the time that he's even in the book on the run. He flees to the priests at Nob, at the tabernacle. And this is really an indictment on Saul. Saul kills almost all of the priests in the tabernacle when he finds out that they helped David. He goes to King Achish of the Philistines. He's so desperate, he hides among the Philistines for three chapters. He goes to King Mizpah of the Moabites. He flees to the cave of Abdullam, to the forest of Hereth, the wilderness of Engedi. Of course, you know all of these places, so it's fine. <laughs> David spends the rest of this book on the run, fighting every day for his life, scraping for bread. He goes to the priest at Nod because he is starving, and the priest gives him the bread of the presence that nobody really is supposed to eat. But the anointed king is dying of starvation, and the priest aids him. And as he's running, 
as he's running after he leaves Samuel, this interesting thing happens is that David continues to gather to himself. David continues to gather to himself uh, loyal supporters. So in chapter 22, verse 2, it says that everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul, they gathered to David and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. These are all people who have been burned by Saul's administration. These are other outlaws coming to David. David begins kind of running the island of misfit toys, like in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer movie, right? So he's got like the pistol that squirts jelly, you know, and the horse that like swims, right? Or the bird that, I don't know, bird swims. By the way, for those of you keeping track, holding out for a hero is in Footloose, by the way, from last week. So Chris Orr. 50 points. It is, it is, it is a footloose. Um, somebody came to me on Sunday. I was like, you know, that really wasn't footloose. And I was like, okay, well, crap. Okay. He's got all these people coming to him. And in this time, in these 11 chapters, here's essentially what is happening in chapters 20 through 31. Over and over again, Saul proves himself to be unworthy of kingship in Israel. I mean, one by one, he loses allies until eventually he like ends up using some pretty shady characters to get what he wants to get done, done. Meanwhile, everybody of repute, everybody of honor, and a few people that have been burned gather to David, and his forces get bigger and bigger and bigger until, spoiler alert, at the end of chapter 31, Saul kills himself, which is like the most disgraceful way to to die in ancient cultures. But all this time, as Saul is being shown as a bad king, as Saul is being shown as a fool, Chapter by chapter, a few things are happening. David is being proven to be God's choice. David is being refined in his character in the wilderness because that church is what happens in the wilderness. Our character is refined in the wilderness. And that's why I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking a little bit about David's time in the wilderness because it's important. It's also important because we're talking about David and Jonathan's friendship. This time in the wilderness, I think it's interesting that the Lord's anointed, the Lord's favor, the Lord's blessing, it all rests on David in 1 Samuel while David is on the run. The Lord's blessing, the Lord's choosing, the Lord's anointing, the Lord's favor is on David the whole time that he is on the run. And guys, if that's what favor looks like, if that's what blessing looks like, I'm not sure I want to be blessed. I'm not sure I want to be the favorite of the Lord. If favor means the wilderness, if favor means running for my life, do I really want to be blessed? It's not typically how we use the word favor. It's not typically how we use the word anointed, my more charismatic friends. Somebody preaches and we say, they, were, they are anointed with the Spirit. I don't know if I want to be anointed like David was anointed. I don't know if I want to be blessed. I don't know if I want to be favored. When Steph and I were on our first date, October of 2010, it totally was October, wasn't it? (laughs) Cool. Love you. November 9th. So now we know who the romantic is. (laughs) November 9th, we're at a little uh, cafe called Third Coast great coffee, good scones. And uh, Steph mentions to me on our first date, and by the way, the thing I walked away from our first date was, I don't know if I ever want to know, I, I, I don't ever want to be in a place in my life where I don't know what she thinks, is what I remember thinking. I just want to know what she thinks. 
And um, so she says to me in passing, while we're on this date, that the Lord had given me a lot of favor while I was at Moody, while I was an undergrad, that the Lord gave me a lot of favor. And she was right. I mean, I, I helped start a student group. I ran for student body president, lost by this much. There was no recount. If there had been, you know, those hanging chads every time. Um, I met some of my life's best friends. I, I became close with a, a number of professors. I mean, you guys have met Bob and Pam. They've been out for the marriage conference, good friends of ours. Um, that felt like favor, that season of my life. Here's what did not feel like favor. Five years of infertility and miscarriage did not feel like favor. Here's what did not feel like favor. The number of times I've been up in the middle of the night weeping over our church. Y'all weren't here in year one. It was brutal. It was the worst. We would stand up here and sing, and it wasn't even a worship leader who was Julia, and I would turn around and there'd be nine people in the room. It was brutal. It was brutal. This is like a low attendance Sunday. This was like a high attendance, crazy high attendance Sunday for like the first two and a half years. It was brutal. That did not feel like favor. Here's what does not feel like favor. Spiritual warfare, friendships that end for reasons that I still do not understand, the awkwardness of unresolved conflict. This does not feel like favor to me. But there's not one time in which God removed his blessing from David while he was in the wilderness. There's not one moment that was blessed without blessing, that was without favor, and that was without anointing. There's not one time when the anointing was revoked while David slept in caves and next to streams and waking up in a terror every time he heard something in the night, wondering if that was one of Saul's soldiers there to kill him. That did not feel like favor and blessing to David. And fast forward to Jesus, the true king of our hearts, who is mocked and ridiculed, of whom Isaiah says there is nothing about his appearance that we should love him. I mean, at least David was ruddy and handsome. Jesus was ugly as sin. There was, we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted, Isaiah says, from his birth to his beatings, from the first whispers of the Holy Spirit to the whippings at the hand of the Romans, from the announcement of the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, to the pronouncement of Pilate that sends him to his death. Jesus was blessed and anointed and favored every step of the way, and he died. I think we have a really bad understanding of what blessing is. I think we have a really bad understanding of what the favor of the Lord is. The Lord meets a need and we say we're blessed. We're on vacation and we take a selfie and we hashtag blessed. How are you doing today? I'm blessed. We don't know what that word means. We don't know what that word means. Because we only associate blessing with abundance and not with lack. And both are blessed states. What makes them both blessed states is the Lord's presence with us. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. Let me show you what this looks like. In my Bible, there's these little inscriptions at the top of Psalms. Yours may not have them. It just depends on translation. And mine says, To the choir master, according to do not destroy, which is like a tune, a miktam of David, a psalm written by David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Psalm 59 is what David writes as he sneaks out the window of his own house, leaves his wife there not knowing if she's going to die. That's what he writes. This is what he says. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. 
Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and they make ready. Awake, come and meet me and see. You, Yahweh of hosts, are a God of Israel, are the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs. That's like cussing in a worship song to call somebody a dog. And prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision, O my strength. I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the end of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. Verses 16 and 17 are great. But given all that, they're prowling, they're looking for me, they're saying things about me. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. As David flees the royal court, as he flees for his life, at one point David is so desperate for help that he leaves his parents with the Amalekites to make sure that they'll be safe. He's in that bad of trouble. And as David leaves, the only thing that he is sure of anymore is the steadfast love of the Lord, a Hebrew word that means chesed, called chesed. It's a word that's hard to translate into English. It's a word that means steadfast love and faithful love. It's a love that only really God can fully love us with. It is that boundless and that big and that free. That is the only thing that David is sure of. And here is my question for us this morning is what if the wilderness, what if the blessing, what if the favor, what if the anointing of the wilderness is that when everything is stripped away, all we are left with face to face is the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's all we have to figure out because all of the other stuff that we associate with blessing, the job, the house, the the family, the kids, the All of that stuff that we associate with blessing, if we're honest, crowds out our attention for the love of the Lord. And so he will drive us in seasons into the wilderness. And I pray multiple wilderness seasons over you. He will drive you into the wilderness so that you are only left with him. That you are only left with him. Which is why David says, oh my strength, I will sing praises to you. David, on the run, doesn't even write a why God psalm. There are other of those, those in, the New Test, in the Old Testament. There are other of those in the Psalter. He doesn't write a why God psalm. He says, I'm going to write a psalm about how good you are. What if God's favor is still in the desert with us, but it looks like removing everything but his love? So that, that's all we got. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 
Like I said, I've kind of got multiple sermons in this one sermon today. But when doesn't he? Chapter 20, David is still on the run, but what he does is he runs back to Gibeah, where Saul holds his court, because he needs to connect with Jonathan. David needs to connect with his best friend and find out what the heck is going on. And in chapter 20, Jonathan initiates a conversation with his father, and the conversation doesn't go well. And so in 1 Samuel 20, he and David hatch this plan. It has something to do with, I'll shoot arrows here, and that means good things. I shoot them there, it means bad things. David's hiding in a field. He listens to the conversation. But look at the end of this chapter in verse uh, 41. David arose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another, David and Jonathan, and wept with one another, David weeping most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went with him into the city. What holds these chapters together, 18 through 20, is the friendship between David and Jonathan, the covenant friendship that exists between them. And despite Saul's outright attempts to shame his son for his loyalty to David, Jonathan and David are inseparable, maybe not physically, but at the level of the soul, at the level of the soul. I mean, just look at these texts that describe their friendship. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Chapter 20, verse 17, Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as much as his own soul. I mean, even that passage that we just read, they kissed one another. They wept with one another. Despite all of the odds, their souls are knit together. Their friendship stands out as history as one of of the most notable friendships in all of history, according to C.S. Lewis. Their friendship has some instruction for us, but here's the deal. Modern readers, modern critics, look at this friendship and read into the text homosexuality. Now listen, in our community, let's just call it like it is, in our community, we're a community where there are people who in a minute we would move toward full inclusion. There are people who are not. If you are for full inclusion of LGBT people in the life of the church, David and Jonathan's friendship is not a proof text available to you for that reason. It's just not. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why. The intimacy with which David and Jonathan speak to one another, the physicality of their friendship, it's not a subtle hint from the narrator that they are sexually and romantically involved. C.S. Lewis has a great book called The Four Loves, The Four Loves. And in it, he explains the four kinds of human love. There's three of them. Uh, One of them is friendship, which we're talking about here. One of them is eros, which is sexual attraction love, um, romantic love. There's affection, which is the love I have for Jack. Eros and affection come naturally to the human species, right? They're necessary for our propagation. But C.S. Lewis notes that the ancients called friendship the happiest and most fully human of all the loves, It's the happy and most fully human because it's not required for our species to continue on a biological level. I don't need friendship to propagate our species. I do need eros and affection. He said the ancients believed it was the most fully human of all loves because it was removed from the animal nature of affection and eros. The ancients believed this kind of friendship to be the crown of life, 
life's best, and the school of virtue. Lewis wrote, uh, Lewis wrote this in 1960, 59 years ago, if I do my math right. Yeah, he wrote this in 1960, and even then, as he's writing about friendship, he has to address questions of homosexuality between David and Jonathan and between male friends and female friends. He, uh, he has a couple quotes. This one on the bottom, he says, those who cannot conceive of friendship as a substantive love, in other words, a love of its own, but only as a disguise or elaboration of sexual love, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. They betray the fact they have never had a friend. He goes on to say, kisses, tears, and embraces are not in themselves evidence of homosexuality. The implications would be, if nothing else, too comic. He goes on to talk about Beowulf. In Beowulf, there's a lot of crying and hugging and kissing between men. And his point is, it would be really funny if in Beowulf, that was, there was more than friendship going on. On a broad historical view, he says... It is, of course, not the demonstrative, gen- demonstrative gestures of friendship among our ancestors, but the absence of such gestures in our own society that call for some special explanation. His point, this is interesting, his point isn't that our ancients are weird because they're very touchy. His point is that we are weird because we're not. We're the first, like in Western society, post... I, This is Kyle out on a limb. I would argue it. It's probably like somewhere in between the Renaissance Enlightenment era and the the Romantic era of the 1800s that especially men did not touch anymore, right? But that's a relatively new cultural phenomenon for human people as opposed to other people, human people, whatever. It is the... It's not the demonstrative gestures of friendship among our ancestors, but the absence of such gestures in our own society. Now, C.S. Lewis, for many years, was close with J.R.R. Tolkien. This is where I get to nerd out just a little bit. The author of The Lord of the Rings is Tolkien, and again, it seems to me that Tolkien is helping Lewis make his argument about friendship through the lives of Frodo and Sam. So if you have not watched these movies or read these books I don't know if I can speak to you anymore, but uh, if you have, what you'll remember is that Frodo and Sam leave their little hometown called the Shire and travel all the way to Mount Doom to destroy an object of great evil and great power. And on the foothills of that mountain, Frodo collapses from the weight of carrying this through three very, very long books and three very, very long movies. I mean, I'm, I feel the same way. And so Sam, in this very memorable scene, picks Frodo up and carries him the rest of the way. And when they drop the ring into the, into the volcano, it begins to explode and disintegrate and all these things, and they're lying on this rock. And they're, like, they're basically saying goodbye to each other. They're weeping and they're touching. And they get saved later on in the books and later on in the movies. Frodo is at the Grey Havens, which is on the sea, and Frodo is going to leave Middle-earth like all ring bearers do, because obviously. And so you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's so fun. <laughs> um, the inner workings of magic in this like English novel, duh. And he, he and Sam are having this very tearful goodbye. I mean, weeping and embracing. And so the internet explodes after this with Frodo and Sam are gay. If Lewis and Tolkien could, 
rise up in our midst, they would say that something is wrong with us that we sense sexual tension where there is none. Tolkien and Lewis are really making the same argument. And he's doing kind of one with nonfiction and the other one with fiction. That, and we can apply it to the text today. I mean, if you, Tolkien and Lewis would say, if you detect something sexual between David and Jonathan, it's probably because you've never had a friend. Tolkien and Lewis would say, it's not David and Jonathan that are weird because they're huggy or kissy or cryy. It's, it's we're weird for being uncomfortable by it. Now, I find a lot of comfort in this because for most of my life, I have been the, most, the more demonstrative of my male friends, if not the most. <laughs> I have typically been the more demonstrative of my friends. I am very quick to tell my male friends I love you in a way that makes most of them very uncomfortable. I just am trying to be biblical is what I'm trying to do. So men, if you would rise up and greet one another with a holy kiss, <laughs> um, that would be good. Uh, I just think, I'm thinking, I'm just kind of the person that the Holy Spirit has sent to inflict on other men, like affection, you know, Um, like a golden retriever puppy. And, but here's what this text really has for us. I'm getting a little like embarrassed now. Okay. What's interesting about David and Jonathan's friendship is the covenantal nature of it. In earlier in chapter 20, they have this exchange where Jonathan says to David, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Okay, that's like a huge statement for Jonathan to make. Jonathan goes on to say, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love, the hesed of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. See, Jonathan knows that in ancient Near Eastern culture, that in a battle between Saul and David, only one of them will live. What does it say Harry Potter? Neither can live while the other survives, right? It's the same thing here. I'm just trying to bring all the nerd into one sermon. And, and, and so he also knows that in ancient Near Eastern warfare, if Saul dies, his whole family dies with him. If David dies, his whole family dies with David. He says, listen, if I am alive, and he, pro- he recognizes that he won't be. In fact, in chapter 23, Saul and Jonathan say goodbye to each other again. And the next time, and Jonathan, David and Jonathan... I mean, David never sees Jonathan alive the rest of the book after chapter 23. His best friend, knit at the soul. Do not cut off your steadfast love, your hesed, from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Also a great story in 2 Samuel I can't wait to get to about this. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. I mean, Jonathan just said like, screw you, dad because you're making yourself an enemy of David. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he had loved him as his own soul. The standard for their friendship, this is so interesting. David and Jonathan swear hesed to one another. That is the standard of covenantal friendship in the kingdom. That is the standard of friendship between men and women, between women and women, between men and men, is hesed, the steadfast loyal love of the Lord that pushes and prods us to holiness. Not funny gifts sent back and forth, not emojis, but holiness. A couple hundred years ago, two brothers and some friends began meeting daily to study scripture and to pray together and ask each other questions. They would ask questions like, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I am? They would ask questions like, do I, this is interesting, do I confidentially pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? Big problem for Trumbull County where a secret is something we tell somebody one at a time, right? 
Did, I, did the Bible live in me today? Not did I read my Bible today. Did you notice that? Did the Bible live in me today? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? These friends gathered daily, they prayed, they answered these questions honestly, and they were mocked by their peers for being Methodists. Methodists. Because they used methods, spiritual disciplines, and held one another accountable to those methods and disciplines. And the brothers were named Charles and John Wesley and George Whitfield, and they changed the shape of the, Ameri- of the, of the global West forever. Leave Christianity aside, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield have shaped, in particular, American culture in a way that few others have, much less the impact that they left on the church. These friends saw what Lewis saw. They saw that friendship is the happiest and most fully human of all loves, that it is the crown of life, and that it is the school of virtue. And so my question for us today is, are your friendships, are my friendships, schools of virtue, or are they a playground for sin? Is it the place that we go to learn virtue, or is it recess where we go and let our hair down? We like friendships that are marked by a low common denominator. We like friendships that are marked by a low common denominator. By that, I mean a low standard for righteousness and holiness. Very often... Our friendships, especially in the church, they do not call forth our holiness. They do not call for righteousness and hesed. Instead, we get a group of guys together, and they retreat back to what is safe, and that's the lowest common denominator, which is fart jokes, sex jokes, and crude comments about women. Get a group of women together, and they retreat back to what is safe, which is usually drama and gossip and nastiness and cattiness. Not that, by the way, women don't like a good fart joke and don't make jokes about men, and that men can't be catty too. When push comes to shove, we are looking for friendships that let us revert back to seventh grade. Where we can talk about people instead of matters of substance, where we can keep it light and airy unless it gets juicy and we're talking about people. And we do all of this, we do all of this, millennials, in the name of being authentic and in the name of being honest. Can I just be honest? And say, how much this person... See, at Moody, you know what we do? <laughs> Good guy, loves the Lord, but... That's, that was code in guy conversation for let's talk about somebody we can't stand. Good guy, loves the Lord, but... We all do this in the name of being honest and being real. And one of the things that I have noticed about myself, probably even more since Aaron has lived with us and since I've been married to my wife is that I tend to look for friends who do not call me on my stuff, friends that let me be honest and real and authentic and who do not push back against my judgmentalism and my criticism and my meanness. But here's my question. Is the judgmental, honest, critical me the real me? Because that's what I'm trying to be. I'm just trying to be real. I'm just trying to be me. I'm trying to not put on a show. But my question is, is my critical nature, is my criticism of others, is that the real me? And I would argue that it's not. If I have died to sin and Christ lives in me, if I have been raised with Christ, then that kind of honesty and authenticity isn't the real me, it's the old me. And so what people around me are doing when they're letting me just say these things and not calling on them is saying, Kyle, by all means, go back to your old way of life. Don't live as if the gospel is real. Don't live as if Jesus is real. Let's just be real about that. 
What I need in these moments is friends who lovingly and without shaming or ridicule tell me, Kyle, let's not go there. I would be a bad friend if I sat and I watched you drink rat poison. Bitterness, gossip, unforgiveness is just as poisonous to your soul as rat poison is to your body. Why do I sit idly by and watch it happen? Why? David and Jonathan covenant together in loyal love. We covenant in disloyal love, not only to one another, but disloyalty to one another, to others outside the conversation. And so here's my encouragement to you. The next time you're with a friend and things are getting honest, hear them out. Don't cut them off and say, you dirty sinner. Don't do that. Let them get to the end of their bucket. Let them dump it. And then with all the love and grace you can muster, say, this is not how we do it. In the family of Jesus, this is not how we roll. This is not how we roll in the family of Jesus. This is not what we do. You know it, I know it, and we can be better. So you got to say. Jesus calls us friends. And he calls us into an authentic friendship, but it's, it's far and away, far and away from a friendship that leaves us where we're at and so much a friendship that calls us into who we were always meant to be. Paul says, put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above, on all these, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Seth's going to come and lead us in some response time. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks that your friendship is loyal, not primarily to our old selves, but to our new self. And give us an opportunity this morning to lean into that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this morning, as we um, just take a couple minutes to reflect, I just invite you to maybe think about how you sense God getting your attention this morning. And so there were a couple points to the sermon. One was, are you in a season of wilderness, and do you need to be spending time focusing on God's hesed love for you and his, his everlasting love for you. So do you need that comfort? Do you need ways to seek that out? Um, or is he getting your attention with the friendship piece? Um, is there a friendship maybe that you recognize is not bringing out godliness in you, but is maybe bringing out some of those, those worst characteristics in you? And, and what is God asking you to do um, about that friendship? Or how is he asking you to maybe um, approach that friend and speak to them in a way that would encourage them to be more godly? Or maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't know Jesus. And so how can you interact with them in a way that would make them want to know him? And so we're just going to take um, a minute here, and um, you can just focus. You don't have bulletins this week, but if you just kind of want to seek the Lord and, and ask how he's getting your attention, and then we'll uh, move into communion.